Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben, well, here we are with Korahor. We are in chapters... 30 and 31 today, but we are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to include next week's Come Follow Me uh, in chapter 32, and we're going to bring that along into our discussion today, and the next week we'll bring 32 along with it as well, and it's just, it's a great crossover chapter. I love 32. Yeah, I mean, it it glues together this uh, concept of Alma going, or the narrative, so to speak, of Alma going to the Zoramites, what he discovers, how he you know, the people that are ready to receive what he is teaching, um, and then where it goes from there. Uh, Korhor's sort of this interlude chapter, almost like, you know, uh, Mormon's like, hey, this is a good story about Alma and this Korhor guy. We got to stick it in here before we get into all the war stuff that uh, precipitates out of this Soramite deal. So Korhor kind of sits in here almost like a you know, almost like a standalone novel, so to speak. You know, there's, there doesn't have to be a whole lot of context before and a whole lot of after. However, if you do contextualize Korahor with the character that we've been seeing build in Alma up until this point, it, it is really interesting to see how Alma has developed all up through. And then Alma has his whole uh, sort of soliloquy psalm deal in chapter 29. And then... Uh, he is confronted with this new, different type of challenge to his experience and faith, which is Korahor. Yeah, isn't it interesting that we have Alma 29 right before Korahor? What's Mormon? I've always wondered, what is Mormon thinking in compiling this? What is his, what's his narrative? What does he have in mind? And why is he picking the stories that he's picking? Because he says multiple times that there are countless records he's pouring over that he's reading through this library of hundreds and hundreds of years of records. And yet he picks this and he says he picks it for our day. You know, later in the, in the actual book of Mormon, he picks it for our day. And why, why these stories? What's he trying to show? And so in Alma 29, I really catch hold on Alma's humility in coming out with this amazing prayer Oh, that I were an angel and could have the wish of mine heart that I might go forth and speak with the trump of God and with a voice to shake the earth and to cry repentance to every people. Well, that sounds like a very worthy endeavor. But then he comes back, but he's like, I ought to just, I ought to not do that. I I am a man and I do sin in my wish. <laughs> I'm like, well, if Alma sees that as sinning, man, I've got a lot of work to do, but Man, he springboards right this right into Korahor, and for me, Korahor was always one of my favorite lessons to teach in seminary, and it was one of those that went over really well. Uh, I don't know why, but it was the one that just it, everybody remembered. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> uh, I'll have to figure out why someday. But with Korahor, it's always been for me a very legalistic talk about the battle of knowledge. It's what is knowledge? What do you know? How do you know? And it's like the battle of knowledge back and forth. The evidence that's presented, Korahor is like, you can't know this. Alma's like, I've got every evidence in the world. And Korahor is like, well, maybe you do. And then Korahor kind of gets it in the end. So it's it's a fascinating story. Well, just Korahor's name, I think, has a lot to do with the memorableness of this story. I mean, it's just a hardcore name, right? Hardcore, Korahor, you know, kind of, <laughs> it's got the whole you know second part of Nihor. And so it's, uh, I don't know, there's several points in the Book of Mormon where we see people's names and we don't know if that was actually their their proper name that they were called by in their life, or if this is a like a pseudonym that is used later to describe them in scripture. And uh, part of me wonders what Korahor actually means. And if it's a pseudonym that, that Mormon kind of threw in, or even Alma when he was writing this story, or if, or if that was actually the guy's name. Um, because I don't imagine, you know, any Latter-day Saint families naming their kids Korahor or, you know, middle name Korahor stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a good, solid, you know, bad guy name, right? <laughs> it really is. It really, it, it just sounds bad. <laughs> but here in verse 12, in, in chapter 30, verse 12, it introduces him. And right out the gate, Mormon's like, I'm not even going to mess around with this one. This this guy is Antichrist. He, and it's not that he is an Antichrist. I love how the, the, the language there is. And this Antichrist. So it's everything that we're going to find out from Korahor is directly counter to what that thing that Christ is. So what is Christ? Well, it's everything that Korahor is not. So we get to come out and find out what what he's talking about. And we find out that a lot of his doctrine suppresses belief. It talks about action and about the, and basically there's no need for this action. Um, you have no hope. There's no resurrection. Prophecy is not a thing. Faith is not necessary. Um, there's no repentance or forgiveness because there is no sin. And ultimately there's, there's no atonement. And if there's no atonement, so that whole God gave his life for the love of, of the other. So there is no love. And so there's just a lot of things in Korahor's doctrines that really do strike at some very fundamental principles of what Christ is. You know, uh, the way that Korahor begins into his uh, discussion, though, is very reminiscent of the whole discussion that Ammon and his brethren have been having among the Lamanites, right? In verse 13 or 14. He says, these things which ye call prophecies, which you say are handed down by holy prophets, behold, they are foolish traditions of your fathers. And this is basically a rewording of what Ammon and his brothers were saying to the Lamanites. Hey, you guys are all living under foolish traditions or incorrect or wicked. You know, all these different words are used of your fathers. And this is what, this is Korahor's narrative. Hey, you guys are living under foolish, wicked, incorrect traditions as well. And um, I, I don't know how much of a buzz phrase this was for the Nephites at the time. You know, it seems to be pretty significant. Again, that's the whole premise and narrative that Ammon and his brothers went over the Lamanites with, uh, saying, oh, you need to believe in our traditions instead of, you know, the wicked traditions of your fathers. 
So I think it's very interesting that Korihor leads in with this, right? Kind of grabs the attention of the Nephites. Oh, you know, what, what do you mean by our traditions? He says, the traditions of your fathers in verse 16, which lead you away into a belief of things which are not so. And he says, you know, That's in really verse 13. Yeah, it is. It's a fascinating <laughs> statement there, right? But in 13, you know, that you are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope. That why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do you look for a Christ? That word yoke there is really interesting too, because it's reminiscent of, of Christ saying, take my yoke upon you, right? That we, this uh, idea of being a Christian is that we yoke ourselves to Christ. And Korihor is throwing this back in the face of people saying, you know, this is a burden that you're taking upon yourselves. To, to emulate, to try to emulate Christ, who you don't really know anything about. You know, you're just making it up. And you're just burdening yourself down with sorrow. And and Alma's narrative on this, we'll get to this verse, is completely different. You know, he says, why are you why are you going around and teaching people that this is wrong? You know, they are that that interrupts what does he say? Something about interrupts their rejoicings, right? That people are are happy, this brings them joy and meaning in their life. Why are you trying to tear that down? So it, it's a very interesting counter narrative where Korhor pulls in all of these phrases and concepts that have been popular in the use of the preaching of the word of the gospel among the people, and he uses them to sort of try to subvert that. In verse 15, when it says, how do you know of their surety. Behold, you cannot know of the things which you do not see. Therefore, you cannot know that there shall be a Christ. So here we have an epistemology, right? It's his epistemology is in those things that he can see. And I love that there's an elder, one of Elder Maxwell's books called The Enoch Letters. He talks about the triumvirate of knowledge that in philosophy speak, there's three basic pillars of knowledge. There's language, rhetoric, and logic. And those are the three pillars of how we know what we know. And Maxwell describes how in Zion, there's a fourth way of knowing that while not counter those other three of language, reason, and rhetoric, it's not dependent upon them either. It's an independent fourth way of knowing. And he describes that as being the spirit, that it's not counter or in contradiction to these other things, but it's independent. And yet Korihor doesn't have this. Korihor is relying on his senses. He's relying on simply what he can see. And that's his basis for knowledge. And down here in verse 19, I, I thought this was really interesting. He ends up taking off over to Jershon, right? Over to the people of Alma. And mm -hmm. I read that and I'm like, like that's a, that's a bold move. Um, <laughs> you're not going to be, I already know you're not going to be successful, but that, hey, you know, props for being bold, I guess. But then it, uh, it says in 18, And thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in their wickedness, yea, leading away many women, and also men, to commit whoredoms, telling them that when a man was dead, that was the end of it. And I think that's just interesting the way that Mormon phrased that. You know, the, the leading away the women and the men to commit whoredoms. <laughs> And I was like, what was going on here? Like, what was the influence? Because obviously, this is not a phrase that I see in the Book of Mormon of identifying women first, of identifying that kind of thing. So it's like there was very much a cult. It looked like to be a cultural shift that something was happening 
and a narrative for women in their culture that was targeting them. And I'd like to know a little bit more about that to see how Core Horror was going about doing that and if that's actually a thing. But I just thought that was interesting the way that it was it was presented. But yeah, they take they get he goes over to Jershin and the people in Jershin were like, nope, that's not uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. So they just basically take him out of the land and they take him over to the next land over. Right. They take him over to the next city over. And the high priest over there, uh, Gedona, he's like, no, that's not going to be it either. And so eventually Korahor makes his way to Alma. And that's where things end up getting to be pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, this, you know, back to for a second, when he goes among the Antanifalihais or the people of Ammon in the land of Jershon, they bound him and carried him before Ammon. You know, this this does seem a little out of character for this people, right? I think they just they just didn't know what to do. You know, they're they're these are were Lamanites. They don't really understand how to deal with what Korahor is doing. But this is reminiscent to me of what just happened to Ammon when Ammon went to the Lamanites, right? They bound him and they took him before their king. Well, here we go. We have Korahor coming. They bind him and they take him before Ammon. Uh, it just seems uh, so poetic, almost. Oh, funny. <laughs> In terms of, of what's going on here. And um, yeah, so they, they go over there to Gideon. And this is interesting because a little bit of a contrast here again, among the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, I don't know how much we can read into this, but it's there. So we're going to read something into it. It doesn't say they have a chief judge. It just says they had a high priest, Ammon. And then when we get over to Gideon, uh, it's like they take him over to the land of Gideon because over there they've got a they've got a chief judge. And so we're going to take him over there and let them deal with this. You know, we're we're not really into judging people here. Uh, again, maybe I'm reading too much into it there, but it doesn't say they had a chief judge there. Whereas in Gideon, they take him to the high priest and the chief judge. And then later he goes to Alma and the chief judge. So at every point here, he's before a high priest and a chief judge, except for in the land of Jershon. Again, maybe I'm pulling too much out of this, but it, it, it seems interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I had never picture, uh, pulled that out before. But yeah, I, I really do think that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's there in Jershon, they probably did operate differently. You know, they were under kings for so long, but once you come in and have your king under another king, it just, it, the Nephites operated a little bit different. So yeah, I would think that would stand to reason. That's a that's a good way to pull that out. So again, we have Korahor here uh, in verse 23. I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performance which are laid down by the ancient priests to usurp power and authority over them. In verse 24, he says, Ye say that this people is a free people. Behold, I say they are in bondage. Ye say that those ancient prophecies are true. Behold, I say that you do not know that they are true. Uh, you know, back to your concept about how his accusations of you don't know, you don't know. But, but he seems to uh, really... Uh, be disingenuous about this accusation because even in verse 16 he says uh that their traditions lead them away into a belief of things which are not so so is he accusing them of believing things that are wrong or of saying they know things so so here we kind of have you know a, a difficulty in in his accusations and arguments is he accusing them of of believing incorrect things or accusing them of uh, claiming knowledge. But um, anyway, the, uh, back to verse 24. 
ye say that this people is a free people. Behold, I say they are in bondage. This little couplet of sentences is interesting to me because it's it's kind of a straw man. Um, it, the there's there's two different types of freedom and two different types of bondage going on here, and he's confounding them because he's not wrong on one hand. You know, this you say that this people is a free people. Well, there does seem to be quite a bit of like civil liberty going on, right? among the Nephites. They claim it, that at least in the beginning of the chapter, which is interesting. They say the law can't have any hold upon him and then multiple people bind him and take him to the chief judge. I, I, don't, know, I don't know how that works, but it, 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 there, there does seem to be a contradiction there, right? Like either, either the law can hold him or it can't, and yet the people are still operating as if it can. But, but again, back to 24, this people is a free people. Behold, I say they're in bondage. Well, they are in bondage in terms of in as much as they are servants of sin right and and alma points this out to them continually and we find out in later chapters as the wars start again uh, we're going to find out in chapter 35 that alma you know is realizing that the people are still operating under this this narrative of of sin and revenge and and enemy you know, us versus them type of thing. The Nephites are operating under this. So in a sense, Korhor is right here, you know, that the people are in bondage. So I just thought it was interesting how he's he's trying to mesh these two concepts into one to create sort of this, this straw man argument against what the Nephites or the members of the church really posit as their the foundation of their belief and so forth. Yeah, that's a great point, because when I read 23 and 24, and also 28, I think is a good contextualizer there, because when Korahor is talking with Gadona, he's saying, listen, I'm not, I don't believe in the foolish traditions of your fathers. I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient priests. And he says, you say this people is free, but I say they're in bondage. Well, he is not talking about political bondage. He hasn't mentioned one time about being in bondage like he's been in bondage, right? But in 28, he comes along and he says, they durst not make use of that which is their own, lest they should offend their priests, who do yoke them according to their desires, and have brought them to believe by their traditions and their dreams and their whims and their visions and their pretended mysteries, that they should, if they did not do according to their words, offend some unknown being who they say is God, a being who never has been seen or known, and who never was or ever will be. And it seems to be that the kind of freedom that Korahor is talking about is freedom from a narrative, that it's to get the people to believe in a narrative that is controlling, to that they're basically living in fear. And there's kind of a, it seems to be a little bit of a disconnect from when Gedona ends up saying, well, you're so hard-hearted, I don't know what to do with you, I'm going to ship you over to Alma. And so once Korahor gets over to Alma, having said all this to Gadona, then at that point, Korahor says, and he did rise up in, in great swelling words before Alma, and did revile against the priests and teachers, accusing them of leading away the people after the silly traditions of their fathers for the sake of glutting on the labors of the people. So now we have Korahor switching tunes. He's not talking about the narrative anymore. Now he's talking about the glutting on the labors of the people. And that's where Alma picks up. So Alma doesn't really ever talk about the, the narrative portion of it that I see. 
But he starts talking about that glutting thing. He's like, I was like, listen, we've never glutted. We've never even taken anything whatsoever for our work. We've, we know, very reminiscent of King Benjamin, right? That they've worked their whole lives for their own hands, for their own support. And notwithstanding the many labors which I have performed in the church, I have not received so much as even one senine. Well, there you go. That's why they told us. <laughs> all of that to be able to understand that verse. <laughs> Mormon's like, you know what? I spent all that time itching it in. I'm going to get my pennies worth out of it down here later in the text. So he's not received one senine, and I'm guessing that's a penny, right? Unsenine for my labor, neither has any of my brethren, save it were in the judgment seat, and we have received only according to the law for our time. So here we have Korhor, and I think you're right, Korhor is battling a couple different fronts, and he's he's kind of all over the map here. Well, he he is. He's very accusatory, almost to the point where, you know, he's kind of overplayed his hand here, I think, with Alma. And and Alma's like, look, you, you obviously, you know, let's let's have a discussion about what you want to have a discussion about. But let's not talk about these things that you you know are obviously just ridiculous. Um, and there's no base in your there's no base to your accusations here. But this seems to be sort of what the argument becomes between Alma and Korahor, if we can call it an argument, that Korahor is making all of these accusations against the motives of Alma. And Alma is saying, how, you, there's no evidence that you have of, of that motive. And, and then we get to the discussion of God, where Alma says, you know, you say that there's no evidence of God, so that's why you don't believe that. But I see all kinds of evidence all over the place of God. And it just really depends, Korhor, on what narrative you want to live under. And Korhor, it's kind of hard to understand what his goal was here. You know, what what is Korhor really trying to accomplish? It doesn't seem to be quite the same as, as what Nihor was doing in terms of priestcraft, right? You know, to get gain and, and power over the people. Korhor doesn't seem to to necessarily want that. He just is operating under this idea that he really needs to accuse, accuse, accuse. Uh, everybody in society is doing it wrong, and you guys are all wrong, and uh, you really have to all change your ideas of how you're living. You know, it's, it is. It's kind of this anti-prophet, or we could say anti-Christ. It's almost like he's calling them to repentance, but the opposite of repentance. <laughs> so, Yeah, with Korahor keep on coming, you know, you don't know what you're saying. You can't possibly know what you're saying. It's one of my favorite places in the Book of Mormon, where Alma simply sits down and asks him, will you deny again there is a God, and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know there is a God, and also that Christ shall come. And now, what evidence have ye that there is no God, or that Christ cometh not? I say unto you that ye have none, save it be your word only. But behold, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true. And you also have all things as a testimony unto you that they are true. And will you deny them? Believest thou that these things are true? Behold, I know that thou believest, but thou art possessed with a lying spirit. And then he comes down again, and, and Alma concludes in 44, 
The scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote there is a God. I just, oh, I just love that. I just love that. Some all things denote there is a God, yea, even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it, yea, and its motion, yea, and also all the planets which move in their great regular forms to witness that there is a supreme creator. You know, it goes back to a phrase that I heard one of my favorite theologians, Richard Rohr, say when he said that nature was the first Bible. What did men experience? How did men experience God before they had the scriptures? And it was going out into nature. It was going up into high mountains. It was going out into the wilderness. It was it was going out to experience nature, to look up in awe at the heavens and the stars. And Abraham gazed at the stars and he gazed at the heavens. And he learned of God through God's creation. And Alma here is coming along with that same truth for me, where he says, everything, everything is a witness that there is a God. We see the handy, the, the workmanship of everything that he's done. And for me, I'm coming to a place where I see the light of Christ in all things, where I, I'm learning to recognize and, and kind of feel in, in more of a contemplative way, just the, the, the presence of God that is in all things. And it's been a really fascinating journey to focus on having those experiences. So it really touches me to be able to read that again from Alma and have that testimony that all things denote that there is a God, that there is a supreme creator. And it just really speaks to me. You know, this this thing you bring up about the earth and uh, nature and being out in it and experiencing God. I had this idea, uh, sort of a seed of an idea that I was I was thinking about a while back when uh, I went camping and <clears throat> looked up and just saw, you know, ridiculous number of stars, but also realized that I wasn't seeing, you know, near as many as I could because of light pollution from nearby cities and, and so forth, realizing that you know, just a couple hundred years ago, there wasn't much of that. And most of the people, when they'd look up into the sky at night, if it were a clear night, they would see the sky just completely full of stars. And not just stars, but all of the colors of the Milky Way and and everything. It made me wonder, you know, if there's some sort of correlation between that in a in a small sense and people's perception of nature as a witness of god and his work because you can't i don't think i when i look at it in the few times that i have been able to actually experience that it is it's just breathtaking there's not really words to describe what you're seeing there because you're seeing infinity it's just right there in front of you. And to Alma, that is, you know, a witness of God. There's this infinite creation that he wants us. He It's there for us to see. He puts it on display for us and wants us to experience it. But so often we don't even look up, but it's just right there the whole time. And uh, I just wonder if a part of the whole one of the things that we lose with modern society, right, is 
this attachment to that experience. Anyway, I, I, again, I don't know if there's much to that, but because of Alma's discussion here about that, you know, you can tell that that is something that every time the sun went down is ever present in these ancient people's minds because the stars are uncountable, innumerable. And we don't experience that, I think, to the same degree, it, it, you know, most people in, in our day and age. You know, you talked about in verse 42, how he says, Thou art possessed with the lying spirit, and ye have put off the spirit of God, that it may have no place in you. You know, Alma's alluding here to Korhor's experience where he has not been listening to any promptings or inclinations that the light of Christ or the, the Holy Ghost has in, in teaching him truth. And that has been ignored to the point that he's, he's really just not listening to that at all anymore. And that light is, he's not paying attention to that light at all anymore. Later in this story, we start seeing, or we come to the point where Alma says that Korahor, if he continues down this path, is going to be struck dumb. And I wonder if there's some sort of correlation here between, just like a natural law type of correlation between Korahor's, not just actions, but Korahor's continued denial of evidences and witnesses that are placed before him, his continued denial of them basically this broad daylight witness is is not akin to a rejection of the light of Christ. I don't believe that he could ever completely, you know, would ever completely depart from him, but that it might, ha that that rejection might result in some sort of physical manifestation in, in him not being able to speak. Again, I, I don't know, this is you know, just speculation in terms of what is really going on here. But there, ha I, there seems to be some sort of cause and effect with this. And the only other example I can think of scripturally of something like this happening is Zacharias when he is uh, told by the angel that he's going to have a son. And his doubt and disbelief, the angel says, you know, will result in, in him not being able to speak for a time. And uh, again, I, I don't know if that's the same thing at all akin to this. but there might be some sort of correlation between this this rejection of witnesses that are given to us and our physical ability to to speak to witness to testify of something i love that a lot because i think that is a lot validated in in verse 48 when it says in korahor said unto him i do not deny the existence of a god but I do not believe that there is a God. And I say unto you, I say also that ye do not know that there is a God, and except ye shall show me a sign, I will not believe. You know, I love Elder Holland's talk on belief and how he tells the story of the father with the daughter who comes to Christ. And Christ says, if, if you believe, she'll be healed. And he starts, Lord, I believe. And then almost as if there's a pause, a recognition that Maybe my belief is not sufficient. Maybe it's like a doubt is turning in inward to that doubt of like, do I, do I not believe sufficient? And the immediate humility. 
help mine unbelief. That there is a plea to be able to expose or to or to pull the cover away from the unknown. This father does not know if he believes enough, but then the Savior there, recognizing the father's plea, recognizing the sufficient belief. And so that belief is sufficient. And for Korahor, he connects this epistemology of knowledge through what you see against belief. And so he doesn't deny the existence of God, but he doesn't believe it because he can't see it. So unless he sees it, he's not going to believe it. You know, when you talked about the stars, Ben, that made me think, see, my wife and I, we live in Bakersfield, California, which is in the south, the very southern tip of the California Central Valley, just right north of the California grapevine. So we get, we're kind of right there in the south end of this desert kind of farmland area. And it's not 30 minutes until we're up into the high desert. And my wife, her happy place is in the mountains with trees and streams and lakes and that's her happy place. That fills her soul. Mine is on the beach. When I go to the ocean and I get to be there by the beach and I get to see those waves coming in and to, and to feel the sand and to feel the waves and to feel that, that's what, that's what fills me. That's my, that's my nature. And so we kind of compromise. So now we live in the desert between the two, uh, the forest and the, the ocean. But when, uh, when I go out to the ocean and I see those waves coming in and coming out, you know, I grew up as a child taking family vacations out and camping on the beach down in San Onofre and Doheny in Orange County. And as an adult, coming out and being out, being able to have opportunities of going out and on the beach early in the morning and, and just wondering, like, wh where's the off switch for the ocean? This thing just keeps on coming and coming and coming and coming, and it never stops. Like, these waves never stop. And when, I, when I'm there, what's present for me in those moments is just the unrelenting love of God, that God's love never stops, that it's over and over and over again. And whenever it comes in, if you miss it, guess what? It's coming again. And if you miss that one, guess what? It's coming again. And just that unrelenting repetition of the waves coming in, I always see God in it. So going back to you know what Alma said about all things denoting there is a God, those moments for me are not signs that there is a God, but they're contemplative moments when I feel the presence of God. And that's where I feel really sad for Korahor. Because what he's looking at is he can't see God in the waves. He can't see God in the forests. He can't see God in the skies and in the stars. He's looking for signs when he lives in the middle of all of them. And what he's looking for is he's looking for a rational imposition of belief when Alma here is recognizing that that's not what it's about. It's about learning how to just sit with God and to let God make himself present. And to see in those moments to open up your heart to allow God to come in and to fill you with peace and with joy in those moments that you just want to sit in the awe of God. And so for that, I, I, feel, very, I feel very bad for Korahor that he willingly chooses to miss those opportunities when they are so omnipresent before him. Well, and it seems that Korahor wants to start with knowledge, you know, start with concrete knowledge. And this is interesting because then we get in chapter 32 where Alma says, that's not where you start. You don't start with knowledge. You start with faith. And Korahor won't 
won't accept faith as a place to start to gain knowledge. He only wants evidence, proof, signs of power. And um, he accuses Alma, you don't know. And this seems to be uh, a betrayal of his own inability to state that he knows anything. You know, Korihor doesn't seem to know anything. And because he doesn't feel like he knows anything, he doesn't believe anybody else can know anything. You know, it's, this is uh, Book of Mormon nihilism, so to speak, right? This is the concept. You know, when you were talking about uh, the waves and, and nature and experiencing God, it reminded me, I, I quickly looked up this quote from G.K. Chesterton. This is one of my favorites. Um, it uh, Anyway, I'm just going to read it. He says, Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again, to the sun. And every evening, do it again, to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes them, makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Anyway. Yeah, I just kind of want to sit with that. It's powerful. Yeah. You know, there, there's such an amazing and a beautiful presence to be with God, and to... And to see God in all things, to be able to let ourselves be a witness, rather let nature witness itself to us, and for us to be able to recognize that as sufficient. And I think, you know, how how much hubris do I have, how much pride do I have to think that that's not enough to be able to know, to know that there is a God. And being there and opening, yeah, I, I love that wondrous awe, that 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 uh, that childlike wondrous awe. So here we have what I think uh, appears to be just Alma basically stating the natural consequence of what's going to happen to Korihor, and we we could get into a discussion here of. You know, Alma, Alma's perspective, or at least his stated, stated perspective to Korihor, is that this is God doing this to you. You're going to be struck dumb. And I think uh, as we get into chapters, uh, maybe next week we'll talk more about this. But this kind of goes back to the concept I've talked about before in terms of perspective, that when a person is in wickedness, so to speak, right, they their view of God is angry, vengeful, judgmental. But as they are repenting and they change, you know, that repentance is literally a change of perspective. And with that repentance, that change of perspective changes how they view God. And no longer is God viewed as vengeful and judgmental and angry. 
but as loving and merciful and forgiving. And that is where that forgiveness comes from, you know, where as soon as we repent, we feel that forgiveness because we're feeling who God really is because we've changed our perspective of who he is and we're simply able to see that now. So anyway, going back to Korihor here, I, I see this merely as this natural consequence of him persisting in a rejection of witnesses, witnesses of nature, witnesses of Alma, the spirit striving with him, and Korihor rejecting this to the point that it seems to lead to him not being able to speak. Something happens neurologically, I don't know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to where he can, he can no longer speak. He says... Almost in uh, desperation, you know, oh, yeah, well, I know this was God that did this. And so, you know, please pray and, and let this pass from me now, you know, so that this, this goes away. And Alma says, you know, because of who you are at this point, you know, it, it, you haven't really changed. You haven't repented. Like you've not changed your perspective of who God is. If you would change your perspective of who God is then this would go away naturally. You wouldn't seek to uh, deceive people anymore. But if it were removed, you know, you, don't, you didn't really receive a witness of God. This was simply a sign of power, but you don't, you don't really, uh, you haven't really accepted the witness and accepted the light that it can provide. And so there's not really any change in your heart. So this going away wouldn't result in any any change of your actual experience or behavior as it relates to you experiencing who God is. So anyway, that's kind of what I see. Yeah, I've noticed that rational understanding can do a lot of wondrous things. But for me, I've explained it before through my own progression where my entire life I've been heavily engaged in apologetics, you know, kind of like a pseudo-apologist over on this side. And I've, I've loved it. I've loved defending the different aspects and the different doctrines or principles or history of the church and of the scriptures, and that's been enjoyable for me. But as I've gotten older and I've sought more to have a relationship with God than trying to find out more things that I could talk about God with, and I found that they're two different and distinct things entirely. <laughs> that for my ability to simply talk about, about God is one thing, but have I actually developed a relationship personally with him to be able to be there one-on-one? -on -one? And that's what I've changed my focus on. The older I get, that that's where I want to be. And so I see Korahor here in that kind of vein that he's the one that wants to talk about the proofs of God without ever actually taking the moment to experience God. And when he finally experiences, and, and whatever that is, whatever that transition is, that he can't speak now, and he's looking for it to be taken off, it's not it, that rational sign that he saw, that thing that he said he would now change if there is a God, he hasn't really truly been touched. There's been no changing of the inward vessel. It's all external, superfluous. And, and in that world. And so, yeah, it's it's a beautiful story. I, I feel bad for Korhor and his, and his choice to not repent. But something you said, Ben, really struck me, and, I, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, in about how the wicked view God as, as a punishment. You know, in my own, in my own discipleship and my own uh, growth, I've, I've studied, I was going through certain experiences and my 
relationship with God was changing and my relationship with the scriptures and how I interacted with the scriptures and how I interacted with God was changing. And I was going through what felt like this big deconstruction phase of, of a lot of like old narratives that I'd built up about things were falling away. And, and so I started to do what I only had ever known before about studying a bunch. And for whatever reason, I ended up coming into contact with what are known as, as contemplative Christians. And, and that just that message of what's called contemplative Christianity really landed for me. And and it really, really helped me in my discipleship. And in that journey, they, there's a few authors that talk about different stages of faith development. And it's not that there's like the first stage and the second stage and the third stage, even though sometimes they're talked like that, so that, you know, whoever's in the third stage is better than the first stage. It's, it's not like that. It's just there's various stages and they're all equal and people are just find themselves in different ones. But in this stage development, this, this development of faith, we also view God differently in each one of these stages. And what's talked about a lot of times in the first stage of development is we look at God as this really kind of a separate God, a God that's not really interested in creation, that we are so small and insignificant that he doesn't really take the time or it doesn't really take the time to really care about us or to think about us. And so we're largely just on our own. The universe isn't good or bad, but God just doesn't care. And so he's just over there. And that lasts for a little while, but that eventually devolves or evolves, depending on how you want to look at it, into the view of God that is held by all, that almost all scripture talks about explicitly or seems to talk about anyway. And that is the transactional view of God. And the transactional view of God is where God is neither fully for you or fully against you. He is fully for you in the way that when you're doing what he says, then he's going to be there for you and help you and do everything that he can. And he'll provide a way to try to help you. But if you are not fully engaged in him, then he will actively come against you to destroy you and punish you. And, and he's prepared a hell for you to be destroyed or to suffer eternally. And so it's it's this weird relationship where the universe is not inherently for you. It's not really inherently against you, but God can definitely be against you if you're not worthy of God's love. If you're not worthy, if you're not active, if you're not coming towards God, if you're not doing the things you need to do to be brought into the presence of God to qualify for that, then God is actively coming against you. And that's really where the the majority of religion rests is in that kind of context. And then there's a third stage where they call more of a transcendent God or more of a transformational God. Um, and, it's, and it's transformational is, is more the right word, where we realize that God is, it's like the prodigal father, the prodigal son's father, where he's consistently running for us. He's consistently running after us, that he sees us, he keeps one eye on the road. And whenever we're on the horizon, he's consistently running towards us. And when we are mad and upset and we don't want to come into the party, he's coming out to visit us and to talk with us. He's always engaged in us, that we are always, that we are always his work and glory. And that there is never a moment when he, that we have never, ever, ever not been loved. And that we are always enveloped in God's love. And we can choose to turn away from it and to not recognize it but it's always there nonetheless. And that really is the view of God that I'm, I'm moving into personally in my own discipleship. And when I come to scripture, sometimes it's, there's a little bit of a, dis, of a disjoint because I've lived for so long and I still do. It's not like I've made a jump. 
I still live very much in a view of like a transactional God. And I still think in those terms and I still view, view those things. And I still find myself in that way. But what you said, Ben had really struck because that really offers a way to be able to make a distinction in what looks like inherent transactional relationships in the scriptures and really begin to see them in a beautiful transformational way, which I think is incredibly helpful. And and I really appreciate that. Well, it's useful in the context of looking at scriptures as descriptive instead of always prescriptive, because even from a prophet's point of view, you know, he's, he's teaching people and he's trying to help them come to repentance. But the first thing you have to do in repentance is realize where you are, what your perspective actually is. And so I think uh, often a prophet's job is first to describe that, you know, this is this is what you view yourself and your relationship to God as right now. You are experiencing all of these things because your view of God is that he is vengeful and judgmental and angry. And so you're not interested in coming to him because that's that's the way you view him. And uh, you're always you're trying to run away from that. But I'm here to tell you that you don't have to view God that way. And as soon as you change your view of him, you will experience something different, a different reality. And so I see that as repentance process, that repentance isn't only or or isn't isn't really purely uh giving up sin per se that's simply kind of a consequence of our repentance because what happens is when we repent we're changing our view of god you know it's kind of going back to that bible dictionary definition a fresh view about god and our relationship with him and as as we repent we're changing our views from fear of God and his punishment and judgment to a loving, forgiving, merciful Heavenly Father. And when that perspective changes, all of a sudden that forgiveness, we can experience that forgiveness that is always ready to be there for us anyway. But because we have shut it out in terms of our perspective, we haven't been able to see God that way. And how faith fits into that is is really interesting. I think when we get into Alma thirty two, it really helps us understand how faith fits into that e- into that equation, so to speak. Right, going back to transactional stuff, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's so hard, you know, not to to run run back to to Mama on that one in terms of uh, what we've been <laughs> programmed. I, I feel like sort of uh, our mindset, and uh, it's it's going to take. Um, I feel some time and experience for me to to change the way that I talk about it or be able to talk about it. And and maybe I don't know how that maybe that won't ever necessarily happen because it's really more about the experience than anything. And then maybe that's why the prophets um, had such a difficult time not speaking in terms of transactional, because in terms of bringing it to a telestial experience, it can so often seem transactional when what we're trying to describe is not a transactional thing, but really something you experience because of your change in perspective. Uh, again, that's that's something that as I when I go to scripture that way, 
things really make a lot more sense than they ever have before. Especially these next few chapters of the Book of Mormon, where Alma and Amulek are preaching to this people and trying to help them change their perspective of who God is, because they don't even understand who Christ is or the purpose of Christ. They're worshiping idols. They're saying vain, repetitious prayers. This is just all symptoms of them not viewing who God really is and what their relationship with him can be. Amen. <laughs> so so right here, right here with 31 you know we i we talked about doing chapter 32 i yeah i think that maybe was, we uh, won't get to it maybe no, that was we're, not too gonna get, we're not gonna I, get to 32 i really didn't know that we would talk that much about korhor but but yeah it really did kind of come out a little more so yeah korhor uh, is great so in 31 taking all of that into context this is one of my favorite verses all of a sudden we have the end of korhor now all of a sudden there are this these group of Zoramites, and it says in chapter thirty one verse one. Now it came to pass that after the end of Korahor, <laughs> I love how they put that. After the end, Korahor ended. Well, okay, well that's a nice way of putting it. With the after the end of Korahor, Alma, having received tidings that the Zoramites were perverting the ways of the Lord, and that Zoram, who was their leader, was leading the hearts of the people to bow down to dumb idols. His heart began to sicken because of the iniquity of the people. For it was the cause of great sorrow to Alma to know of iniquity among his people. Therefore, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful because of the separations of the Zoramites from the Nephites. I I, I chuckle. I don't know why I chuckled there. But it, it is. It's kind of funny to me in that Alma is so pure of heart that he sees the Zoramites bowing down to dumb idols and it pains his soul. And he just wants nothing but for his people to have the love of God in their lives and to have the light of Christ and the knowledge of Christ in their lives. And he wants it so badly. You know, going back to Alma 29 and his whole desire there, that this literally causes him pain. I think that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Now, the Zoramites had gathered themselves together in a land which they called Antionum, and it was in the east of the land of Zarahemla, which lay nearly beyond, nearly bordering upon the seashore which was south of the land of Jershon. Well, there's a lot of Book of Mormon geography that I'm just not going to remember. But mm -hmm. when you get into verse 4, and this is verse 4 and 5, I think is absolutely brilliant. And I love the way that Mormon brings us up, and it ties us back to Alma chapter 4 that we talked about in one of the first podcasts. But it says, And now the Nephites greatly feared that the Zoramites would enter into a correspondence with the Lamanites, and that it would be the means of a great loss on the part of the Nephites. All right, so now we have Alma seeing the wickedness of the people, but he also sees the Nephites looking at the Zoramites from a political standpoint, not a moral one, but a political one, that the Zoramites may defect over to the Lamanites, and that would cause a lot of problems for the Nephites. So now there's a socio-political and now a socio-religious issue going on. And so it, once again, what does Alma do? Well, just like in, in 417, he says, and... I think it's 417. Is it 417 or 419? I can never remember. It's one of the other two. It's one of the two. I'm going to look it up just so I can uh, be, be consistent for posterity's sake. 419. Okay, it's 419. But here in verse 31, verse 5, he says, And now, as the preaching of the word of God had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. Oh, I love it. Just love it. Again, it's like, and I love that they use the sword. The, the message and the testimony of Christ is juxtaposed once again 
with the sword of coercion and violence and of the state and of coming out and whatever the state can impose and the sanctions and the laws and the rules and the regulations, all of that, that the preaching of the word of God had the greater tendency to lead people to do that, which is just than any other method, any other method. And so we're going to go out and we're going to try the virtue of the word of God. Ah, speaks to my soul. I love that. Well, you know, this seems to be just as much about the Nephites here as it is about the Zoramites, because remember how when Alma was chief judge, how they treated the dissenters, the Amlicites, right? They went out and preemptively attacked them. You know, the Nephites engaged in sort of preemptive warfare at that point. But here, Alma is seeing this and seeing if the Nephites, if their fear starts growing here, we already know, you know, maybe he's privy to the fact that they told Ammon, all the Nephites told Ammon, no, don't go up to the Lamanites. Let's just go kill all the Lamanites before they destroy us. You know, the Nephites uh, kind of like this preemptive war type of thing sometimes. There they're, they're, seems to be a faction among them that pushes for it. Alma here, I see, I see him saying, hey, before these Nephites get too nervous and too upset um, and wanting to go and take out the Zoramites, let's go preach to them. And maybe this can sort of at least stave off the Nephites' desire to attack them if I'm over there <laughs> uh, actually <laughs> preaching. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I kind of see that, you know, as, as Alma not just, you know, seeking to convert the Zoramites, but trying to placate his own people a little bit here. Also, you know, back in, in verse 2 where he says he's he's exceedingly sorrowful, this is uh, reminds me of the... <laughs> The part in the movie Incredibles where where the Mr. Incredible, you know, he laughs. He says, I just cleaned up this mess. Can't you clean it? Keep it clean for just a <laughs> second, you know? And it's like Alma. He's like, I just I just spent years and years and years preaching to these people. And we had everything good. You know, all the Ammonihaites, they were destroyed. <laughs> we didn't have to deal with those anymore. And here you guys are again doing the whole thing all over again. Anyway. <laughs> was just like <laughs> it's a, it will never end <laughs> that's right alma it will never end that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so now we know that the zoramites are dissenters they're not uh they're not sharing a unity with the nephites anymore so when alma goes over there you know i re i remember reading this and i'm sure it wasn't the first time but i was around nine years old when my parents were reading this in our evening scripture study and it just baffled me. It just baffled me how Alma responded to the prayer that the Zoramites gave in their church on the Ramiumptum. Now, of course, we know what the Ramiumptum is, that, you know, when, when Alma finally went there, and, and by the way, he gets the missionary dream team together, right? So now we have, like, the sons right. of Mosiah, Zoram, his sons. Um, I mean, like, we have, like, everybody who's anybody worth of missionary here in, in the last several chapters. And so they head over here. And one of the first things they see is the Sunday service. And they go in and they look at it, and there's a, a high place that one person can stand. They call it the Ramiumptum, which being interpreted is the Holy Stand. And the prayer they pray, Holy, holy God, we believe that thou art God, and we believe that thou art holy, and that thou wast a spirit, and that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. Holy God. We believe that thou art, hast separated us from our brethren, and we do not believe in the tradition of our brethren, which was handed down to them by the child, 
the childishness of their fathers. But we believe that thou hast elected us to be the holy children, and also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. But thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever, and thou hast elected us that we shall be saved, whilst all around us are elected to be cast by thy wrath down to hell. For the which holiness, O God, we thank thee, and we also thank thee that thou hast elected us, that we may not be led away after the foolish traditions of our brethren, which doth bind them down to a belief of Christ, which doth lead their hearts to wander far from thee, O God. And again, we thank thee, O God, that we are a chosen and holy people. Amen. And Alma basically loses his heart. <laughs> and it's like, it came to pass that Alma and his brother and his sons and heard those prayers. They were astonished beyond all measure. <laughs> and I, I remember gift, listening. Right. Yeah, it really does. It's almost like a gift. I, I want to see their reaction. I wish I could be there just to just to look at their reaction, to be a fly on the wall and to see what that looked like. What astonished beyond all major looks. What what is in the text that Mormon is making that that you know assumption there that uh, statement? But here we are. Is that they believe that God is holy, and I'm like, hey, it's not a bad prayer. You know, they believe that God is holy and that they are chosen. And that God's a spirit, well, the, the, the Holy Ghost, come on. And that, Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated from our brethren. Well, there's very much always a talk about being a peculiar people and being different than other people in our, in our own faith, which was handed down by the childishness of their fathers. Well, but we believe that thou hast been elected to be, has elected us to be a holy children. Well, we've been elected to be holy people as well. We believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he's elected us, that we're going to be saved, that we're going to go and we're going to, we have the rights and ordinances to be saved, and that those that don't receive those will be damned. And that all of these other things that they talk about, about uh, the only thing that we don't believe is that they didn't believe that there would be a Christ. And that was the only thing that I ever saw as a kid that I was like, you know what? I could loosely follow, and even at nine years old, because we read scriptures you know, pretty consistently, I could see that there were par so many parallels to what the church would believe and state, but that the main thing here was that they didn't believe in Christ. But as an adult, it took me a while to be able to kind of really tap into what was really going on here and to understand Alma's, Alma's astonishment. <laughs> but I always thought that was really interesting since as a kid, I've always like, well, that prayer wasn't half so bad. <laughs> Well, you can see, you know, I think maybe a lot of us have been in some testimony meetings where uh, most of this type of stuff, if not word for word in, in concept, has been said, right? You know, people saying how grateful they are that they, they have the gospel while everybody else is wicked and, and you know, that kind of stuff. You've, you've heard this type of thing before. And yeah, these sure. are people that, uh, you know, they're trying to express their gratitude and, and humility but you you wonder you know uh, where where is this coming from? Is this really coming from a sense of humility? And and obviously it's not our place to be able to judge that. It's just look at ourselves, right? You know, if we are thinking and feeling those things, is that really coming from gratitude and humility, or is this coming from a sense of pride that we believe God loves us more than He loves someone else? And uh, that's only something we can judge in our own hearts. And if our beliefs. You know, we were talking about faith and beliefs. <laughs> I'm getting these all confused up. But if our <laughs> if our if our sort of statements of faith are such that, or our testimony is such that, it uh, leads us to believe that God loves us more than someone else. 
then uh, we really need to step back and, and hold on for a second and re-examine how did we arrive there? How did we arrive at that conclusion? What, what thought processes and narratives are we going through that help that bring us there? Because that is completely contrary to the whole foundation of what we supposedly believe, what supposedly our faith is in. So I, I, I think you're right here that there's not necessarily anything wrong with the statements, the, the actual statements here, besides the one that they say they don't believe that there shall be a Christ. But what you can see in, in the way that they're expressing this is that this is not done out of humility, but this is done out of pride. And we find out pretty quick that this pride leads to all kinds of things in terms of how they treat the poor. The way that this prayer is contrasted with how Alma prays is really fascinating to me because Alma's prayer is just him pouring out his soul to God and expressing and experiencing his love for these people, these Zoramites. That Alma really is in that moment experiencing the love that God has for these people and trying to convey that or, or, or understand how he can convey that narrative of, and perspective to them. Yeah, and one of the things I think really stands out is in verse 23 and 24, Alma does go through and kind of explain what he saw there. Now, after the people had all offered up thanks after this manner, they returned to their homes, never speaking of their God again, until they had assembled themselves together again in the holy stand to offer up thanks in this manner. And even in verse 22, that everyone offered up the exact self-same prayer. So then in verse 24, it says, Now, when Alma saw this, his heart was grieved, for he saw that they were a wicked and a perverse people, yet he saw that their hearts were set upon gold and upon silver and upon all manner of fine goods. And he also saw that their hearts were lifted up unto the great boastings in, in their pride. So I think there's a little bit more going on to the story than just the prayer. You know, now that we see that they are highly ornamented, they are highly decorated, they are wearing all their costliest apparel. They're going to church, they're standing up there, they're saying the self-same prayers in their pride, never truly emptying themselves. And this goes back to our Beatitude discussion from last week, but that for those who are truly holy, those they have to be pure in heart. They have to go through that Beatitude process. So we have the poor in spirit and the more, and those who mourn and are meek and are filled with, with righteousness and who give mercy and who are pure in heart and who are true peacemakers. They will be persecuted but they are also holy. And so in that moment, like Enos, when you come to a place where you have run the gambit of the Beatitudes, you seek for the welfare of anybody who you don't see as, who you see as different than you. So Enos asked for his own sins to be forgiven. Then he asked for the sins of his people to be forgiven and for his people to be blessed. And then he asked for his enemies to be blessed with the Lamanites. And so whenever we see God's Beatitudes at play, we see men and women seeking to unify and not to be pulled apart. We, we want to be brought together. We're, we're praying for unity for all, all of our God's children. And so I think for me, that becomes a really big litmus test for whether or not our piousness is rooted in the pure and heart doctrines of God's gospel, is if we are seeking for opportunities to unify the people who we have otherized or if we're seeking for ways to be able to distance ourselves and to segregate ourselves. 
because the minute we try to segregate ourselves as somebody who's holding a holier standard than not, we're not really engaging the Beatitudes. We're not truly going out of our way to include everyone who we see is sinning differently than ourselves, whether they be in a different group, whether they be in a different culture, whether they be in a different society, whether they be of a different race, whether they be of a, of a different nationality. Whenever we enter into the othering phase where we have othered the person and we are seeking to separate ourselves to keep them there, us here, so that we are not contaminated by their impurity, I think in that way that's really speaking to what the, the heart of what the Zoramites were, because it's very much an, uh, an elevation of the self and of, and of your own piousness, whether or not you're wearing spiritual gold bands you know, and bracelets and fine twined linens. Or whether or not you you know in your spiritual haughtiness, or whether or not you are wearing physical gold bracelets and fine twine linens, I don't think it really matters. But that's where I see the the Zoramites here, and that plays out once we start to see when Alma starts talking to the poor among them when they come up, we start to see that kind of juxtaposition come out even more distinctly. I really like the phrase that Alma uses here a couple times, and then um, and then a similar sort of reference back to it in another verse. So verse 31 and 32, he says first in his prayer, Wilt thou comfort my soul in Christ? And then he prays for those with him. He says, Wilt thou comfort, O Lord, yea, wilt thou comfort their souls in Christ? And then in 34, he says, what thou grant to us that we may have success in bringing them again unto thee in Christ. Behold, O Lord, their souls are precious, and many of them are our brethren. Therefore, give unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom that we may bring these our brethren again unto thee. So this really speaks to what you were saying about Alma's different attitude here, um, that he really sees these people uh, as to be loved. And and I, I see this prayer as sort of his his wrestling, right? With should I should I laugh and ridicule their beliefs and what they're doing here? And no, I need to pray. I need to humble them myself. I need to not try to ridicule them, but I need to see them as precious. Their souls are precious. God want, loves them just as much as He loves us, and we need to see it that way and not think that we're better than them just because. We feel like we have, uh, you know, more of the truth, so so to speak, to impart. But I like this phrase, "comfort my soul" or "comfort their souls in Christ." Alma, I think, anticipates uh, some great trials here. Uh, he's gone through a lot. He's no stranger to the horrors that missionary work can have, and uh, you know, he he experienced Ammonihah, of course, and so. I think he's uh you know preparing himself mentally spiritually to to have these experiences not sure what's going to happen when he starts getting into talking to these people how they're going to respond um and then those around him that are with him as well wilt thou comfort their souls in Christ in other words will you prepare them to take upon themselves the name of Christ and take up their cross as might be required of them here. We don't know what's going to happen. We might be asked to sacrifice in that way. Anyway, that's, that's, I love that phrase there. That's absolutely powerful. And I love that this is very much following the beatitude pattern. 
because Alma's prayer is then answered in, in the end of the chapter in verse 37 and 38. And this is lifted straight out of the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount. I mean, this is Sermon on yeah. the Mount language right here. And after that, they did separate themselves one from another, taking no thought for themselves what they should eat or what they should drink or what they should put on. And I mean, that that's that's lifted straight out of the sermon. And then all of a sudden we have beatitude talk right here in 38. And the Lord provided for them that they should should hunger not. Now there is being physically hungry, you know, to hunger physically and spiritually. They didn't hunger, nor did they thirst. You know, and, and that nor should they thirst, that really harkens back to me about one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. It's quickly becoming my favorite, but the woman on the well, when he talks about giving her living water that she will never thirst again. And he also gave them strength that they should suffer no manner of affliction, save it were swallowed up in the joy of Christ. That's that whole persecuted thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they especially persecuted for righteousness sake and for Christ. Now, this was according to the prayer of Alma and this because he prayed in faith. Oh, man, that goes back to that Korhor story about faith and, and knowledge there that he prays having a, an assurance of God's goodness and love. And he, his prayer, his true prayer to unify, to bring together, he sees disorder. He sees that there is a living apart from the gospel that we're trying to bring together. And in doing that, his prayer unifies himself to his brethren and his brethren to the people to allow the Lord to be able to open up and to create a space for whoever the Lord has prepared to be affected and to, or to be touched by this message. Ah, it's absolutely beautiful. It is. This is a, a great explanation of the preparation that has to happen in the hearts of these missionaries as they go to preach to these people. So, um, you know, Alma chapter 32 really springboards from this uh, because here we have uh, almost sort of another allusion to Beatitudes here, right? We have these these poor who are literally poor, but they're coming to Alma because they are also poor in heart, which I take as sort of a uh, synonym to poor in spirit in this sense. And so I, I think that's so fascinating that we have a people who are basically not just not just physically or financially poor, but they're coming to Alma that they're already here ready to receive the kingdom of God because they're poor in spirit, right? And Alma is just overjoyed at this opportunity that that they're here, these people that are already here, they're empty, they're ready to receive the kingdom of God. And boom, he he gives it to them. Uh, That's I love awesome. It. It's so cool. It is awesome. Well, Ben, we are, we're over. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to get to 32 today, but uh, I think we're going to have to end it right here with uh, the regular come follow me. I think we're going to have to end it here at 31 and pick up 32 next week. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, please leave us any comments, feedback, thoughts that you had. Um, we're we're fascinated to hear what uh, what you're getting out of uh, your reading and from everything that you're pulling from uh, from what you're listening to and what kind of was speaking to you. This is uh, this is fun to to enter into conversations with with those who are finding joy in the scriptures as well. So, until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan, and I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>